Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Hey, it's Karina Longworth. If you want to listen to You Must Remember This without ads, the best way to do that is by signing up for Stitcher Premium. Just go to stitcherpremium.com or the Premium tab in your Stitcher app and sign up with the promo code REMEMBER to try a free month of premium listening. You'll get ad-free listening to You Must Remember This, as well as all Stitcher and Earwolf shows, and your premium subscription supports our show directly, too. That's stitcherpremium.com, promo code REMEMBER, for a free month of premium listening. Thanks. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today's episode takes us back a full 100 years, to 1914, to talk about an actress whose name you may never have heard and whose movies you probably haven't seen. At the peak of her career, Theda Barra was amongst the top three stars in Hollywood, the other two being Mary Pickford and Charlie Chaplin. She was Hollywood's first sex symbol, and the first star to have her biography totally made over as a publicity project, and maybe American popular culture's first homegrown goth. After her first film, A Fool There Was, Theda Barra became known as The Vamp. She wasn't the first movie actress branded a vamp, but Theda Barra did define the vamp sensibility in such a major way that her name became synonymous with that sensibility far into the 20th century. It was a branding that Theda, who in real life was an incredibly square bookworm from Ohio, would have loved to have been rid of, but couldn't shake. Her career spanned from 1914 to 1919, an incredibly formative time for the film industry, during which it evolved from a two-bit operation whose American wing was more or less centered in New York and New Jersey, to a dominant commercial business, which had taken over a previously sleepy farm town north of downtown Los Angeles. Theda Barra's stardom predates Hollywood and would help to set the template for much of what would become Hollywood's business as usual in the silent era and far into the future. Barra herself didn't even come to Hollywood until 1917. That was a move which made some of her biggest movies possible, but it was also the beginning of the end of her career. Join us, won't you, as we learn about Hollywood's first sex symbol, Theda Barra. 
She was born Theodosia Goodman in 1885, named after Aaron Burr's daughter, who had vanished at sea during the War of 1812, and raised in an upper-middle-class Jewish home in Cincinnati. She became an avid cinephile in high school, nurturing an interest in actresses that some would call an obsession. By the time Theodosia was trying to make a name for herself in the New York theater scene around 1905, she had adopted her mother's maiden name, Di Copé. Very little is known about Theda Barra's struggling actress years in New York, but we do know that when she got to town, her waist-length, dark curls, and cherubic body type was fashionable. But by around 1908, women's fashion had moved away from Victorian full skirts. The new emphasis was on slim hips. And by 1910, thanks to dancing star Irene Castle, the emaciated look was in. Theodosia was only 25, but with her naturally round figure and huge, deep-set eyes, compared to all of the other girls she was competing with, with their frail frames and bobbed hair, she looked like somebody's mom. And yet, in 1914, the year before she turned 30, with no known significant acting work under her belt, Theodosia was able to attract the attention of a film director named Frank Powell. She lied about her age, claiming to be 24 and not 29, and padded her resume. And Powell put her in a bit part in a film called The Stain to test how the camera liked her. The camera liked her. Powell had just signed a contract with William Fox's studio, and he brought Theda with him. A number of things happened right before Theda Barra started making movies, which in various ways made her stardom possible. For the first decade or so of industrialized filmmaking, movie companies usually didn't credit their actors and actresses, on the theory that if they became known commodities, they would want more money. This changed in 1910. Florence Lawrence was known only as the Biograph Girl, because Biograph, the studio for which she made movies, wouldn't put her actual name on their films. Then Carl Lemley lured Florence Lawrence away from Biograph with the promise of marquee billing at Universal. A year later came the debut of the first fan magazine, Motion Picture Story, and with it, a culture of breathless storytelling about movie stars was born. From the very beginning, no one seemed to think it mattered whether or not these stories were true. The fan press was never an analog to a serious newspaper's coverage of hard news. It was more like the original second screen experience, giving fans a way of interacting with the icons of the big screen when they weren't in a movie theater, and hooking them into ancillary narratives that would come full circle and enticing them to come back to the movies. Movie fans needed this incentive, perhaps, because American movies of the early teens varied widely in quality, and in some cases were almost literally disposable. They usually ran for a couple of days, maybe a week, and then the next movie would come in and push out the last one, and except for in cases of unusually popular films, eventually previously screened films would be melted down in order to recycle the film stock, or else they'd just be thrown away. The good movies, the artistic movies, were being made in Europe. But in 1914, France, Germany, and Russia, all cinematic pioneers, began to join World War I. As these nations put movie-making on the back burner, America, which didn't enter the war for another three years, was able to catch up. 
When Frank Powell met Theda Barra, William Fox had just bought the rights to a play called A Fool There Was, about an upstanding American family man who was lured into ruin by a witchy woman. The play had been inspired by a Rudyard Kipling poem, which in turn had been inspired by a painting by Kipling's cousin called The Vampire. First exhibited in 1897, the vampire depicted a white-skinned, dark-haired woman perched victoriously above the body of a spent young man. At this point in history, the word vampire could refer to a supernatural creature like Dracula, who was introduced in Bram Stoker's novel the same year, or the word could refer to a woman who destroys a man through her feminine wiles and sexual powers. There's nothing in the painting to explicitly suggest that the woman is the kind of vampire who sticks her fangs into a victim's neck and drains him of blood, which is all the more reason to read it as though the woman is the other kind of vampire. Fox was desperate to find a lady who he could cast as the vampire in his film adaptation of A Fool There Was. Theda's bit part in The Stain proved she had a good look and could take direction, And so Fox, known for his efficiency and not his fastidiousness, signed Theodosia Goodman to a five-year contract, guaranteeing $100 a week. Fox suggested that she take a family name, Beringer, and shorten it to Barra. And so, Theda Barra was born. What was it like to star in a movie in 1914? For one thing, though producers had started to move to California for the weather, About half of all film productions still took place on the East Coast. Fox had an all-glass studio a ferry ride away from Manhattan in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and Florida was regularly used for location shooting. Theta, like a lot of performers of her generation, followed the acting technique popularized by Francois Delsart, a 19th century Frenchman whose disciples learned these very specific poses and facial expressions to convey specific emotions. This was a theatrical acting method that translated well to the silent film of the teens, which was a medium of close-ups and medium shots with little camera movement and a necessary emphasis on physicality. And it was also much more mathematical than the Stanislavski method, which would come to dominate screen acting in the middle of the century. Direction in Theta Barra's day was mostly physical, with very little attention paid to the inner lives of the characters. The goal was to communicate emotional information. Theta proudly claimed to have done extensive research to play real-life historical figures like Cleopatra and Madame du Barry, but this was unusual, and there's no indication anyone cared. Film productions could be both shoddy and wasteful, One Thetabara film shot on Long Island, substituting for the Sahara, with two full carloads of bran flakes brought out to simulate a sandstorm. Performers regularly were responsible for buying or bringing all of their own costumes, and Theta had to do all of her own makeup. And this wasn't anything like modern street or even screen makeup. In order to register on celluloid thanks to the primitive lighting and cameras of the era, Actresses had to wear thick yellow pancake makeup, with their eyes blackened and their lips painted brown. Theta's first scenes were shot on location, on a street, and the experience of wearing that horrific clown makeup in public was traumatizing for her. She felt, she'd say later, like a lost soul. Once the movie was finished, Fox's publicity team set to work introducing the studio's new star to the world. 
Fox had decided to try to sell Theta as an Arabian woman of mystery, on the grounds that that was the only type of exotic woman not visible elsewhere on the screen. Photographer Jack Frundlich was employed to take haunting publicity images of Bara, which were distributed to every magazine long before A Fool There Was hit theaters. Then, there was the infamous Chicago press conference, at which Fox PR guys Al Selig and John Goldfrapp briefed the assembled reporters on the identity of the star of the studio's upcoming picture. She was born in Egypt to a French actress and Italian sculptor who raised their daughter in a tent in the shadow of the Great Sphinx. With her, quote, serpentine figure and flashing black eyes of the desert, little Theta had grown into an accomplished star in Paris. Paris was where Theta, according to this fantasy biography, had been discovered by American film director Frank Powell. And with war about to envelop Europe, American hero Powell had smuggled Theta to safety across the Atlantic. Once this preposterous backstory was related, a curtain was pulled back to reveal Theta Barra, draped in black velvet and veils, reclining on a tiger print chase lounge. From her repose, Theta proceeded to recite a prepared statement about her work in A Fool There Was, and her sympathy for her vampiric character, whose sole virtue, she said, was courage. Some night, when she faces old age and her mirror shows her wrinkles, she will kill herself, Barra said. Gas or poison, I should think, but nothing that would disfigure her. As the press corps was ushered out of the room, one young female reporter managed, or was allowed, to stay behind. Luella Parsons, later one of the great gossip columnists of Hollywood's golden age, said that as soon as Theta Barra thought she was free of inquiring eyes, she threw off her velvet cloak and ran to the window, gasping without a trace of accent, Give me air! So, two narratives began to circulate. There were straightforward reports that Fox had rescued an Arabian princess and put her to work in New Jersey, channeling the dark spirit of her ancestry. And then there were know-it-alls who took an in-on-the-joke stance about the fact that Fox had ginned up a hilarious fake biography for their new star. This was a pretty sophisticated response, especially considering that the fact that the whole idea of an invented persona for a movie actress which of course would become commonplace during the height of the studio era, was in 1915 basically brand new. For a star to even have a personality was new. Again, it had only been a couple of years that actors had even been credited by name. You could say the marketing of Theta Barra was sort of like what happened nearly 100 years later with the White Stripes. Some people reported that Jack and Meg White were really brother and sister, but most publications were more like, Jack White claims his ex-wife is really his sister, and we know that's not true. But the myth-making itself is sort of weird and funny and cool. And then it just becomes kind of a game to watch the facade slip. All of this went down in January 1915. In February, the American film industry would be rocked by the narrative advancements of D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation. Douglas Fairbanks would make his screen debut that year, and Charlie Chaplin took a major auteurist step with the production and release of The Tramp. And yet, by the end of the year, A Fool There Was was still one of the top 10 most profitable movies of 1915. And with its success, 
Vitabara became the movie industry's first overnight star. Fox didn't want to mess with a good thing, so Theta was continually cast as quote-unquote vampires in movies with titles like Sin, Destruction, and Gold in the Woman. Sometimes she was a homewrecker. Sometimes she was an innocent artist's model who was forced to journey into the gutter, bringing down men with her. Occasionally, she was able to wrangle her way into a film considered serious and prestigious, an adaptation of Carmen, for instance, which became one of the biggest films of 1915. Fox's publicity team would up the ante occasionally. In one film, it was reported that Barra's co-star was a live python, although a stuffed snake was almost surely used on set. A phrenologist was employed to examine Theta and determine that she had the muscular system of a serpent. Press releases were issued calling Bara the wickedest woman in the world, pointing out that her name was an anagram for Arab death, and claiming that she was the reincarnation of Delilah and Lucretia Borgia. And finally, when Bara was cast in an epic film as the Egyptian queen, Cleopatra. Bara became such a big star playing these parts that Nikola Tesla promised to send her image to Mars. But Bara soon got bored. Occasionally, to placate her, Fox would allow her to play what she considered to be good roles, usually good girls. But the movies would bomb, perhaps because Fox would intentionally fail to promote them, and then Bara would be forced to shut up about expanding her brand for a while. The studio became a factory, she'd later say. And I can think of no more applicable simile than to say we manufactured pictures in about the same way they make sausages. They were just turned out, one after another. In fact, with the exception of Romeo and Juliet, which was rewritten to be on Barra Brand, with her Juliet coming back as a ghost to be with Romeo as he died, pretty much all of Theta's attempts to defy the persona set by her first role were for naught. Her friends and co-workers started teasing her by calling her Vamp, short for vampire. There are some reports that up until this point, Vamp had two dictionary definitions, neither of them related to vampirism. It meant either to improvise or else refer to the top part of a shoe. The legend has it that once Theta Bara became known as the Vamp, another definition was added for the word. A seductive woman who uses her sensuality to exploit men. Not having access to a 1915 dictionary, I cannot confirm that this is true. But I can confirm that Bara became the Vamp's embodiment. And even though from the beginning at least some segment of the movie-going public was aware that she was not actually a spooky Arab, Fox persisted in trying to get the legend printed. Bara had used her salary to buy a nice, airy, classy apartment on the Upper West Side, where she lived a quiet life with her mother, brother, and sister. But Bara's totally milquetoast real life was the exact opposite of what Fox was selling. 
So they kept a hotel room for her, decorated with scarves and veils and occult knickknackery, so that Theta would have a place to change into her fur robes and have her photo taken and meet with journalists and tell them crock-of-shit stories about her ancestry and her supernatural propensity for man-eating. And this was almost as big a part of her job as actually acting in movies. It was starting to become typical for studio publicity departments to attempt to hide aspects of a star's personal life, although the situation in 1915 was nothing like it would become a few years later, with the rape scandal of Fatty Arbuckle and the drug overdose of Olive Thomas. Still, Theda Barra was unusual, then or now, because what Fox was trying to hide wasn't scandalous. They were trying to hide the fact that Theda Barra's real life was totally boring. Kenneth Anger famously quoted Alastair Crowley's description of the Hollywood folk of the teens as a crowd of cocaine-crazed sexual lunatics. But Theta wasn't part of that. She never went out at night to clubs or parties. She just liked to sit at home and read. And if she dated anyone at all during the bulk of her five years of stardom, nobody seems to know about it. Of course, she was a highly practiced professional liar, who would tell journalists that her inability to fall in love was central to her acting ability. I have never loved, Barra told an interviewer, and if I ever fall under the spell of a man, I know that my power over men will be gone. Theda Barra's career would not have been possible just a few years later, for many reasons, one of them being censorship. Certain aspects of Barra's films remain shocking to this day, such as the costumes she wears in Cleopatra, which amount to pasties made of coiled snakes and a flimsy thigh-slit sarong. But there were no specific regulations about nudity on film in the 1910s. Censorship of movies did not begin to become centralized until the mid-1920s. In Theta's day, a film would have to pass each individual state's decency board in order to play in that area and each board had differing standards of indecency. So a Theta Barra film could be banned or shown only in an edited version in Cincinnati and released unaltered in St. Louis. The news reports about a film's trouble passing the censors in one area would boost business when the film opened elsewhere. So studios had an incentive to push boundaries, at least into a gray area. They wanted the films to seem scandalous enough that they would create headlines without becoming banned outright. One easy fix was to tack on an ending, revealing that all of Theta's sinning had been nothing but a dream. Eventually, Fox pulled a similar trick on Theta Barra's persona, once the censors really started to become a problem. The studio sent newspapers around the country autobiographical essays with Barra's byline, meant to make her more relatable and less exotic. The assumption was that the morality police would go easier on Theta if they knew she wasn't really a vampire. Suddenly, it seemed culturally imperative for audiences to know that Barra's bad girl act was just that, an act. And it wasn't just censors who needed to be appeased, but audience members too. Theta Barra embodied a fantasy of wanton man-eating and destruction with no regard to propriety or long-term consequences. It was a lifestyle which no real woman could get away with in the 1910s, when Victorian ideas about the genders were still very much prevalent. Eventually, it seemed Fox decided to hedge their bets, selling that fantasy to those who wanted it, while reassuring everyone else that Theta Barra posed no real threat. 
Of course, another read of the Barra phenomenon is that it was always meant to be a cautionary tale, and that even when it seemed unusually progressive, it was actually designed to support an old-fashioned status quo. There's a famous interview which Barra gave early in her career, in which she referred to herself as a feminist and explained that her characters were meant to balance the gender scales. Believe me, for every woman vampire, there are ten men of the same type, Theda allegedly said. Men who take everything from women. Love, devotion, beauty, youth, and give nothing in return. V stands for vampire, and it stands for vengeance, too. The vampire that I play is the vengeance of my sex upon its exploiters. On first read... This is like, wow, cool, an early silent film actress outlining a proto-feminist revenge fantasy. Punk rock, right? Well, not exactly. This wasn't an actress speaking out of turn, because that was unheard of at the time. This was an employee of Fox Studios who was talking to a journalist in the hotel room that was kept for her for the occasion. She was in costume, and she was reading lines. And you don't have to read too much in between the lines to get the connection. Theta Bara is the movie screen's embodiment of evil. Theta Bara says she's a feminist. Feminism was thus not so subtly classified as a force for evil. This was a transitional point. For cinema, as we've discussed, but also for cultural ideas about women and sex. The suffrage movement was building up steam throughout Theta's time as a star, leading up to the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920. Theta herself was an unusually independent woman who supported herself and her whole family, but she kept one foot in the 19th century, bridging the past and the present. In 1917, Theta Barra hit the peak of her fame, and also began to decline. A box office draw on the same level as Chaplin, Mary Pickford, and Douglas Fairbanks, she signed a new contract with Fox, promising $3,000 a week, and finally moved to Los Angeles to shoot Cleopatra. Cleopatra became the biggest box office hit of 1917, but reviews were mixed. Many pointed out that Theda Barra's physique, highly visible in those barely-there costumes, was less than desirable and in fact, kind of dumpy. This was the first suggestion that Theta's attractiveness was on the wane. Another big historical epic, Salome, was released in August 1918, and it did well, especially considering that movie theaters in summer during the days before air conditioning were usually ghost towns. But over the next few months, the end of the war and the onslaught of Spanish flu brought a severe decline in moviegoing. A Theta Barra movie called The She-Devil was released in November, the day before the armistice was signed. And most newspapers, with actual news to report, didn't even bother to review the film. A couple of flops followed, and Theta herself just started losing interest. On Salome, she had changed her contract to stipulate that she never needed to arrive on set until 1 p.m. And eventually, she had trouble motivating herself to show up on set at all. In early 1919, she declared that she was on strike until she could find a good, non-vamp script. 
she finally found it, or so she thought, in Kathleen Mavernine, in which Barra would play, as she put it, a quaint little Irish girl who can run and jump and skip and be happy. The happiest thing to come out of Kathleen Mavernine would be that Theta would fall in love with, and eventually marry, the film's director, an Englishman named Charles Braben. When the production wrapped, Theta asked Fox to raise her weekly salary to $5,000. When they declined, she refused to sign a contract extension. Theta was so confident in Kathleen Mavernine that she was sure she'd be able to sign with any studio once it was released. What she didn't foresee was that Kathleen Mavernine, the nice little movie about the nice little Irish girl, would become the most controversial film of her career. The movie was protested by a number of Irish-American groups who complained that the film showed the Irish in a bad light and were incensed that a Jewess had been given the part instead of a real Irish girl. Screenings of the film were stink-bombed. When a censored version was shown in San Francisco, it caused a riot, leading to $3,000 worth of damage to a movie theater. Similar incidents occurred in cities around the country. Theta got death threats. After a few days, after a number of exhibitors had sent the film reels back to Fox unopened, the studio pulled the movie from theaters. By 1920, Theta Barra was unemployed and unemployable. None of the studios believed she could do anything but be a vamp, and a vamp was the last thing anybody wanted in 1920, especially one with that body, whose acting style was so old-fashioned. By that point, the flapper had taken over as the epitome of modern feminine cool. Today we talk about Jennifer Lawrence as the ultimate cool girl, who's incredibly sexy, and yet somehow also seemingly low-maintenance enough to be like one of the guys. The flapper was J-Law's 1920s analog. Young, insouciant, up for anything, with a kind of sporty glamour to match. The flapper was an accessible icon for young women to aspire to. Theta Barra was a mystical, otherworldly, intentionally overblown symbol of female power working through sexuality. In practice, she could be read alternately as the flashpoint for an empowering fantasy or as a cautionary tale warning of the slippery slope ahead for men if the social order were to be altered to give women more power. Either way, 35-year-old Theta pointed back to an ancient past. Clara Bow, Louise Brooks, and other new stars of the 1920s heralded the future. Unable to get work in Hollywood, Theta Barra made a disastrous debut on Broadway in a play called The Blue Flame. The play got terrible reviews, but weirdly, the whole run sold out because audiences wanted to see the famous Theta Barra make a fool of herself. It was like Theta had accidentally made the room of the 1920s. She had a back-end percentage on the show, so it made her obscenely rich and also ensured that she would never be taken seriously as an actress ever again. In 1921, Theta married Charles Braben, and he discouraged her from seeking work of any kind. Occasionally, she'd try to get something going, often when her husband was out of town directing a film on location, but she'd make only one other feature, an ill-fated comeback vehicle called An Unchastened Woman in 1925. 
Fida settled into a mostly happy retirement. Her marriage to Braben lasted for the rest of her life, which ended with cancer in the 1950s. Unfortunately, she died before silent films had been gone long enough for them to really be taken seriously. In fact, in the 50s, they were often treated like a joke, an embarrassment of Hollywood's infancy. Barra's legacy lived on, at first, only as a source for comedy, with the likes of Spike Jones and Lucille Ball referencing and imitating theater on records and TV. It makes a certain kind of sense to lament the way that silent film stars were treated in the decades following the disappearance of silent films. But it's important to remember that nobody thought silent films were worthy of preservation, even when they were dominant in the culture. And in fact, part of how the film industry became an industry was by constantly pretending like the past didn't exist. There wasn't a culture of revivals, so once a film completed its original run, which was usually only a few days, that film either essentially or literally disappeared. There was no reason to put special effort into protecting the physical copies of films from the teens in the teens, and it would have required special effort because the prints themselves were extremely flammable. By as early as 1935, most silent films had been destroyed or disappeared. In 1937, a fire at a Fox storage unit in New Jersey destroyed the master prints of every single film in which Theda Barra starred for the studio. Another fire at the Museum of Modern Art in New York destroyed prints of Salome and Cleopatra. Both are now considered lost, as are most of her movies. Today, the only Theda Barra film that's readily available is A Fool There Was. Most of what we know about Theda Barra's screen presence comes from still photos, some of which, like a famous shot of Barra just kicking it beside a human skeleton, were shot in between films and not meant to reference anything on screen. The woman in these photos doesn't look anything like what we think of when we think of a mainstream movie sex symbol today. Although you can definitely see in Theta Barra an embryonic version of a certain kind of goth punk glam. Her lineage would extend to Susie Sue, Lydia Lunch, Courtney Love, Lord. It's a femininity that's a little scary and definitely not nubile or docile. That's cool, in a way, or it would be today. But it's important to remember that Theta Barra's persona, while lucrative for Theta Barra, wasn't exactly sex positive. In 1958, Richard Avedon took a series of photos of Marilyn Monroe, done up to mimic a number of sex symbols from the past, including Marlena Dietrich, Jean Harlow, and Theta Barra. Marilyn's full-color rendition of Barra as Cleopatra is pure cheesecake camp and it reveals what's missing from the original version. Theta Barra wasn't the kind of sex symbol who promoted sex as something fun and empowering and, well, sexy. As the embodiment of the late Victorian era's fears of what could happen if women were allowed the freedom to pursue their real desires, Theta Barra was more like a symbol of sexual panic. Maybe the fact that she was phased out because times had changed, while bad news for her, is actually kind of a happy ending for the rest of us. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. 
Today's episode was written, narrated, and edited by Karina Longworth. That's me. You must remember this as part of the Infinite Guest Network. Infinite Guest has all kinds of podcasts for you to listen to and enjoy, including Wits, Dinner Party Download, and The Splendid Table. Find them all at infiniteguest.org. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, you must remember this podcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes and please follow us on Twitter at Remember This Pod. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>